Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, it's great to see all of you. It's great to be back up here after a little hiatus. So if I have not had the chance to meet you, my name is Eric. I'm a pastor in training on staff here at City Church. Um, I usually lead music here on Sundays, and I have the privilege of teaching every now and then. I've been uh, kind of like every six weeks or so is the schedule, but I've had time off of both of those things recently uh, because my wife Sarah and I recently had a baby, which is very exciting. Yeah, so as is customary, I am here to pay the baby tax, so this is our family, look at that, Uh, and then a lovely close-up in his favorite outfit, look at that, it's great, love it. Um, So, while that is very exciting, we are uh, even more excited than you all, believe it or not, Uh, it's very rewarding, it's very fun, uh, but please bear with me this morning. Um, I'm still mostly uh, hobbling through each day on caffeine and prayers, so <laughs> please bear with me. Um, but I think as, as tends to happen, I think, with a lot of people that I've talked to is uh, when you have kids or you start having kids, you start to spend a lot more time thinking about when you were a kid or your upbringing or your, your time that you spent as a kid. So I am um, the youngest of three. Uh, my sister's the oldest. My brother is the middle. And so as a kid, for me, I was absolutely mortified at the, at the very idea of ever getting in trouble for anything. Some kids need more discipline than other kids. For me, I was one, I could catch like a sideways glance from my parents and I would just like melt into tears. At the, just like at the thought that I may have done something wrong that I just didn't know about. So I hated getting in trouble. I hated it. So naturally... I would do anything in my power, anything that I could feasibly do to make sure that I did not get in trouble. I I do not mean that I never did anything wrong. That's not what I mean. I mean that I would do whatever it took to make sure that someone else caught the blame if I did something wrong. Um, So like I said, I'm the youngest, which also means that I am blessed and highly favored, right? (laughs) Can I get an amen from the youngest in the room? Yeah. Yeah. So my brother is the middle, Um, and being the middle child, he often found himself in the middle of anything that happened at our house uh, that we weren't supposed to do. So he he was always caught in the middle of any shenanigans that we would get up to. Whether he instigated it or not, he ended up involved. Um, And he did not love uh, that he often ended up under the microscope of scrutiny. Um, So he just got in the habit of defending himself no matter what happened. So if something happened and my parents walk in, they're like, what happened? My brother out of nowhere would be like, it wasn't me. I don't know, but I didn't do it. Whatever it is, I don't want to be in trouble. Nothing makes someone look more guilty, though, than like your first words being like, I don't know what happened, but I didn't do anything wrong. Um, So I've mentioned before that I grew up in South Asia. um, And so in in Nepal, all the houses, they have flat roofs, concrete buildings, all that. We had solar panels up at the top of our house. 
Um, and they were like glass-covered solar panels. So my brother and I, we had very strict instructions to not go on, around, near those solar panels. Stay away from them. Because they're, you know, they're sloped, they're steep, they're at the top of like a three-story concrete building. That's just not a good combo. So we had very strict instructions. Do not go up there. So we were up there one day. And, you know, <laughs> like we did. Um, and we were using them as slides. So they were like, you know, perfectly sloped. It was fantastic. And we're like four and seven at this time. Um, so we were sliding down these solar panels. We were timing it just right so you could, like, put your feet down at the end so you don't keep going. Um, it's like 40-plus feet down. So we're sliding, doing what we're supposed to be doing, not supposed to be doing, right? Makes sense that we weren't supposed to be doing it. Um, but I remember um, on one attempt specifically, my brother put his feet down too early, and he just stuck his heels straight through the solar panels, like straight into the glass, and just shattered it. Um, so when my mom heard shattering glass on the ceiling and couldn't find her four- and seven-year-old boys, uh, she came up to the roof to figure out what was going on. Uh, immediately, my brother was like, I was not sliding on the solar panels. <laughs> also, they broke. Uh, I don't know. Um, and I was standing there beside him saying my token catchphrase that I used all the time as a kid, which was, not me, mommy. That was, that was my go-to. Um, as she's looking at us and then looking at the solar panels with like two side-by-side -side butt marks like sliding down them. But I knew, per usual, if I just stayed quiet long enough, I could fade into the background while he got in trouble and caught all the flack. And I very quickly learned, no matter the situation, if I stayed quiet long enough, he was going to get himself in trouble. And if he didn't do it, I could at least be like, well... Alex hurt me or something. Like that's, and it was, it was easy. Um, so I milked that for years, like most of our childhood, honestly. Um, we have talked about it since as adults. We have, we have dealt with those, those things. Uh, I apologize. Um, we have a great relationship now. Uh, but he was a fantastic magnet for blame when we were kids, let me tell you. So obviously he was not around all the time, my whole life, for everything that I ever got into. But my tendency to get out of trouble uh, was always present. I always wanted to make sure that I did not get in trouble for anything. I didn't want to be blamed or responsible for anything. Um, so, like I said, I did, not, I did not try to avoid doing wrong. I was more than happy to do that. But I just wanted to make sure that I wasn't catching the blame. Um, and so while your life may look different, probably in some aspects, hopefully you didn't do some of those things, um, I don't think it's a stretch, though, to assume that, that some version of this tendency at least exists in a lot of people in this room today. Uh, so it's this, this idea of blame shifting, right? So blame shifting in one form or another is just a, a built-in part of the human condition, I think. And, and one way or another, to one degree or another throughout our life, we all love to find ways to blame things on other people or other things. We just want to, we want to get the blame off of ourselves. Um, so if you're joining us for the first time today or you just need a reminder, we are getting towards the end of a series that, that is all about how we as followers of Jesus are called to be set apart or distinct from the rest of the world, from, from society around us. That is, that is what we've been talking about. In Jesus' own words, his followers are meant to be a city on a hill. It's the title of our series. So something that stands out, something that is clearly distinct from its surroundings, a beacon of sorts. And, and I think one of the most important ways uh, that the followers of Jesus should be doing this is by displaying self-responsibility in an age of blame shifting. 
And so that is what we are talking about today. So first, I, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the blame-shifting part of that statement. So go ahead and turn, if you have not already, turn to Genesis chapter 3. Um, that's where we're going to, to start off today. Um, if you have been around church for a while, um, or if you've been around church at all, honestly, you don't have to have been around for, for a while, odds are good that you are at least loosely familiar with this story. Um, and even if you haven't, this is, this is a pretty recognized story just in the church world at large. Um, so Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 starts off by showing us a conversation between the serpent, which is what uh, Genesis refers to Satan or the devil as the serpent, um, and the first humans, Adam and Eve. So it's the story that we, we see the, the first instance of sin entering the world. The first time that people have done something against God's commands in some way. And so Adam and Eve in this, in this scenario, they're presented with a series of questions and clever lies and temptation that, that the serpent throws out. And they give in and then they go against what God has commanded them. And so what do they do in response? Right? They just own up to everything and they repent and the, everything's good and the Bible's done. Right? No, not exactly. That's not, that's not how it starts. Right? Uh, they immediately feel shame. They immediately try to cover everything up. That they do. So we're going to pick up the passage in verse 8 where Alyssa started reading earlier. So Genesis 3, verse 8 says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. So we see it start immediately, right? Adam and Eve feel shame. They try to cover themselves, and then they immediately start trying, start trying to dodge God, right? So God, the creator of everything, uh, who until quite recently, as we see in this passage, had a very deeply personal and intimate relationship with, with Adam and Eve. They, they try to hide immediately. Their first response is just some version of deflection or blame shifting. So God asks, where are you? He asks Adam, where, where are you? And Adam responds with, I heard you coming, and I got scared because I was naked, so I'm hiding, which is a ridiculous response, right? None of those things make any sense as an answer to the question, where are you, right? Especially since God has been present this whole time, right? And Adam has also been naked the whole time. So it's like, this is, this, none of these things are new. What do you, that's a weird response. This would be like if, if I was at home and Sarah showed up and was like, where are you? And I was like, well, the thing is, uh, I actually heard your car pull up. I realized I, I hadn't done the dishes. I'm hiding. Also, I'm naked. It's just like a whole thing. <laughs> and to which she might respond, well, first, I have more questions now. Uh, but she would, she would feel a little confused at least because none of that has anything to do with that question, right? None of that has anything to do with just a simple, where are you? It's a very interesting situation. So let's keep reading. Verse 11, um, this is God. He says, and he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. So immediately following this bizarre, non-answer thing that Adam does, he is, he's confronted and asked directly, did you do the one thing I told you not to do? And his very first response, it's not to apologize, it's not to show remorse, it's not to repent, it, nothing like that. His first response is to blame Eve, the woman, 
And in the same breath, he then goes on to imply, this is actually God's fault, right? So Adam's like, well, the woman, you know, the one that you put here, uh, it's her fault. And really, you know, while we're talking about it, it couldn't be her fault without first kind of being your fault, right? What a wild response. He is clearly not thinking about anything other than just deflect, deflect, deflect. That's all he wants to do. He, he wanted the spotlight off of him so badly that he even looks at God himself, and he's like, this is probably your fault, honestly. And for, for some reason, instead of just like obliterating him right there, uh, God keeps the questions rolling, right? So keep reading. Verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So Eve just follows suit, right, immediately responding with her own blame shifting. She includes less nonsense than Adam does, but she still blame shifts, right? That's a, that's a bold strategy from both of them when they're asked about this. That is a bold strategy. But not only is it a bold strategy, it's the first ever strategy, right? And it seems like it's their only strategy. That's it. As soon as sin enters the picture... Blame shifting is the response. And as creative and as innovative as I think humans are, uh, we really haven't changed our tone much at all over the course of time. Right? There's just something about our nature as humans that, that just instantly and instinctively just feels inadequate or, or feels like we have to look for something or someone to blame for this feeling of, of guilt that we experience. Whether we blame our situation, whether we blame our upbringing, whether we blame the pressure that we're under in life or just somebody around us or a variety of other things, sometimes I think we do it without even consciously realizing we do it. Honestly, I think more often than not, that's, that's how it works. We just look for any way we can to just take some of the onus of responsibility off of our shoulders and just put it on something or someone else. That is just what we want to do. Blame shifting feels like, like such a baked-in part of the human condition. It is just so deeply ingrained in us. So I want to spend our time, the rest of our time today, just unpacking a little more in detail uh, what the response of blame shifting really is and why I think it's so prevalent among people. And I, I want to help us see, hopefully, some of the really sneaky ways that I think it infiltrates our lives. But most importantly, I want to spend some time looking to Jesus as both our example and the solution when it comes to this phenomenon of blame shifting. So I, I think the concept is, is relatively self-explanatory, blame shifting. It's, it's all, all there in the word. Uh, but I want us to look a little more critically at the, at the concept, the, the whole picture. And so I was going to try to come up with some elaborate or, or nifty definition. Um, but instead, I found somebody on the Internet who did a great job. So no sense in recreating the wheel. He did a really good job summarizing it. So there's a guy named Jared Wilson. He's a, a part of Midwestern Seminary, and he defined the process of blame shifting like this. He said, we believe lies to enter sin, and then we try to cover up our shame, dismiss it, hide from the consequences, protect, and self-justify once inside it. Then, when we are called to account, we try to get out of it by offering some excuse about why it's not really our fault. I thought that was a, an excellent summary of the, of the concept, but also it's a really good summary of the passage that we just read. It, it breaks down that passage from Genesis 3 really, really well. 
And I think the world at large probably would, would leave out the first part of that definition that, that talks about believing lies to enter sin, at least with the world outside of the church. But I think that most people would actually agree that across the board, this is generally how people function. It just, it just is. When we as humans, as people, get called out on anything, we want to shift the spotlight to someone or something else. That's our go-to. But it's, it's also much more prevalent than just trying to get out of trouble. It's much more prevalent than just like, oh, I got caught in a bad thing. It was him, right? That was my go-to as a kid. But it's also bigger than that. And, and let, me, let me try to show you what I mean with, with a few examples. So let's say somebody has, has a really quick temper. Somebody struggles with anger. Is like a, a, that's a theme in their life. They, they know I struggle with anger. Um, blame shifting in that situation may look something like hearing them say, well, you know, I, I, I wouldn't lose my temper so much if, if my kids just behaved better, right? I'd, I, I wouldn't be so frustrated all the time if my spouse was just more considerate. Or if they were just more helpful, I wouldn't, I wouldn't get angry. Or maybe uh, I wouldn't be so mad if my boss wasn't such a tool, you know? Or, or maybe someone is impatient. They, they've been told that they're an impatient person. They need to grow in patience. And they may be like, well, you know, I'd be very patient if it weren't for all the traffic on 640, you know? Or if it weren't for those terrible people who take up the whole aisle at the grocery store and don't move their cart and they're totally unaware of everyone around them, I would be so patient if it weren't for that. Right? If I didn't have so many things to do and the people around me weren't so slow, I would never need to be impatient. Or maybe, you know, I wouldn't be judgmental if everyone around me wasn't so incompetent. All right? I've never said that before. <laughs> Ever. Or, or maybe, maybe it's even deeper than that. Maybe, maybe you've heard things or said things like, you know, if I, if I could just find a spouse, then I, I wouldn't struggle so much with lust. I know for a fact that I would not be so anxious about my life and my future if I had a better job and more money. I just wouldn't. In fact, not only would I not be anxious, I would also be generous if I had more money. Right? Or, listen, I... I would have a, a, an active spiritual life. I would, I would engage with the Lord. I wouldn't struggle with nearly as much sin as I do if my life group was just more encouraging or more helpful. Maybe uh, I wouldn't be dealing with spiritual apathy if I, if I just wasn't so busy or I wasn't so tired all the time. You know, if, if our leaders or if our president aligned more closely with my personal preferences, I would joyfully pray for him, like Scripture says. I, I'm not really one to start gossip. You know, I'm not going to instigate it, but I also don't think I should lie to people around me when they ask my opinion on that guy that I hate. You know? That'd be, that'd be dishonest. I don't want to do that. I can't not share the things that I know. I, I wouldn't be so isolated, and I, I probably wouldn't feel so lonely if people in my life group just did more stuff that I like to do or people just invited me to more things. Uh, maybe it's something from the past that, that we look to as a, as a reason for the way that our life is now. Maybe, maybe it's something like, well, you know, I, I probably wouldn't be this harsh to my wife or my kids, but that's how my dad treated us, so that's just how I am. Here we are. 
right? My, my parents were so strict, and they made me feel so bad for doing anything that they didn't want me to do. So that's why I don't give my kids any structure or rules, even though Scripture maybe says something about that. Right? It's my parents doing. They, they made me this way. I have to do it this way now. You know, it, honestly, it's, it's my youth pastor's fault from high school that I'm actually not a part of the church anymore, right? The way he made me, the way he led just made me not want to follow Jesus. It's his fault. My old small group leader, my, my pastor at an old church, that's the reason that I don't want to get plugged in at a church. I don't really want to get that involved because things got weird. And the list could go on. But I, I want to be very clear first before, before we move on about something I am not saying. I am not at all trying to make the point that other people have never had a negative impact on our lives. I am not trying to say that. I am not trying to say that we are not affected by the harm that other people cause us. If, if that is part of your story, my heart breaks for you. I want healing for you. I want you to be able to experience the Lord's overflowing love and compassion and grace for you. I want you to be able to find rest. I want you to be able to find redemption for all of those things that, that were wrong. And, and I want you to be able to find peace in the arms of Jesus. We want this to be a safe place for, for anyone to be able to work through pain that they have experienced, legitimate pain, and experience healing. We want that. I fully know and I fully understand all of those things can have a very real and a, and, and a very tangible impact on the way we see our lives, the way we view ourselves, the way we view a number of things. So I am not trying to take away from that reality. But there is a difference between acknowledging the ways that people and situations have impacted us in our life and then blaming our frustrations and our discontentment on those people and those things. There is a difference in those. The, the former is productive, I think. You know, it helps us get to the bottom of what's going on so that we can, we can figure out what exactly is happening. How can we pursue healing for you? How can you pursue healing? Even if that takes time. And I think the latter is, is actually pretty paralyzing because that makes us entirely the victim of life circumstances at all times. It actually prevents a lot of healing from even starting. It, it prevents a lot of healing from taking place. But big picture, if we zoom back out, the reality is we have all sorts of excuses for the things that we do and the ways that we act. And it comes up all throughout our lives. Some of those examples that, that I just shared may sound really silly to you. Some of them may feel incredibly personal. But what it, but what it really comes down to is that we as humans across the board, are always looking for someone or something outside of ourselves to point to as the reason for why our lives look a certain way. That's just, that's just what we do. We want someone or something to point at when we get confronted, when we get accused of doing something wrong, just like in the story we read. But, but we also really want something to point at or something to blame for other aspects of our life that just aren't the way that we want them to be. We, we want something to blame for our discontent. We want some, something to blame for our inconveniences that we experience. We want someone or something to blame for our frustrations, for the type of person we've become, for the type of life that we live. And, and the prevalence of blame shifting in our world is so interesting to me. 
because somehow we simultaneously all do this all the time, and we also hate it so much when other people do this. Right? We do it all the time, and we are so bothered by other people doing it. Think, think about the person at work that always seems to have some absurd reason why they haven't turned something in on time again. Right? Does that just like, oh, it just boils your blood. Right? How frustrating is that? Or, or the guy that shows up 15, 20, 30 minutes late every single time. And there is always something that caused it. Right? I got stuck at a train. There was a accident on the interstate. My kids kept me up late. The, my wife unplugged my alarm clock for some reason. I, my toast caught on fire. It's like, I don't care. Stop. Leave 15 minutes earlier. That's, come on. It's infuriating, though, when people, when people do this. It's such a strange phenomenon. I, I, really, I don't know of many other things that are, that are as prevalent and also as widely disliked, I think. Um, but but why, why do we do this? Right? Why do we do this? Why do people all throughout history, why have they done this? Well, I think like the definition that, that I shared earlier at the beginning, uh, uh, we, we, we are very quick to offer an excuse about why it's not really our fault. And, and I think it's similar to how we end up falling into sin in the first place, like the first part of that definition said. So sin is deceptive. It is but it's also enticing. It's very enticing. We would never give into it if it wasn't. We've, we've talked about this before, but Satan uses lies and uses tactics that lure us in because they seem so satisfying. And when we end up in sin, when we end up falling into that, the same cycle continues with blame shifting. Right? Blame shifting on the surface at least seems to, to promise us relief. It seems to promise a way out. We think that what we're doing in the moment is just we're taking the weight, we're taking the responsibility of whatever is happening off of our shoulders. We're moving it somewhere else. And we don't, we don't really care where that somewhere else is as long as it's not here. Right? We don't think about what pain that might cause someone else. We don't think about how ridiculous that blame may actually be. Think about the passage we just read. Adam's first response is like, this is your fault, God. Right? We, we believe this lie that, that if we can just deflect enough, then eventually we can, we can shrug off this crushing burden. And, and sometimes, in the moment, there, there are times that we might feel like there is a glimpse of relief when we do it. Right? Otherwise, we probably wouldn't keep doing it. But, but let, me, let me help you see something with all of this. If, if everything that happens is always someone else's fault around us, we will never actually find any relief. We can never escape at that point. There is no way out. Constant blame shifting actually just digs us deeper and deeper into this pit. So ultimately, when we continue to do this, we, we end up more and more actually under the control of other people around us because we will always be subject to whatever someone around us does at that point. So we end up trapped. That's the end of this cycle. We have zero control over what other people do around us. 
We have zero control over what they do or don't do. We have no control over whether or not they say hurtful things or do hurtful things. There is no such thing, unfortunately, in this life as a world where no one ever hurts us. And if everything about us and everything about the way that we are is because of other people or because of extenuating circumstances, that means we have no hope of ever changing. Because the world will always be like that until Jesus returns. So, so blame shifting on the surface at first, it feels like it might just take the weight off our shoulders. But in return, it, it hands us another weight that we can never take off. Because we cannot control the world around us. You cannot control what other people do. So, so if blame shifting does not actually solve anything for us, then how, how do we approach life differently? How, how do we do that? Because of everything that we've talked, to, talked about up until this point, I, I hope it's starting to become clearer or starting to, starting to maybe make a little bit of sense in your mind just how impactful followers of Jesus can be if they live differently than that. If we live differently than the world around us in this way, I, I, think, I think those pieces may start coming together for us. And to get there, though, to get to the place where we can live differently, it's essential for us to start by looking to Jesus. That is, that is the only place that we can start. And we can look to Jesus both as an example for how to live, but also as, as the source or as the thing that gives us the ability to do that. He gives us both the method and the mechanism for living this way. So look with me. I'm going to put this up on the screen in just a second. We're going to, we're going to turn to Isaiah. So Isaiah is a book in the Bible uh, that, that talks about, big picture, it talks about the sins of God's people, judgment to come, but it also spends a significant amount of time talking about the hope that is coming. Isaiah describes a Savior who is coming to the world, who we all know at this point was Jesus, and he, he describes what he's going to do and what he's going to be like. And in chapter 53, we get a really beautiful description of what is, is going to happen when Jesus comes. So take a look on the screen starting in, in verse 3 of Isaiah 53. So this is Jesus. It says, he, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised. And we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished." So there's a lot happening in that passage from Isaiah. But, 
I, I want us to focus on a theme that is actually laid out throughout that whole passage. Over and over in the passage, we see the, this idea of justice being done and punishment being doled out, but not where it is supposed to go. It, it says it over and over. Verse 4, it says, he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. Verse 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah is describing the way that Jesus is, is going to come. He's describing the way that Jesus steps in and willingly takes punishment and blame on himself that is meant for someone else. We see a picture here of Jesus accepting responsibility for things that are not his fault, things that he did not do. So we see an incredibly perplexing backwards version of blame shifting happening here where Jesus says to God, put it on me. I'll take their blame. So you see, our, our tendency as humans, all the way back to the beginning, is to take everything that it is our responsibility and we try to offload it onto someone else. But Jesus came into the picture. He showed up and he said, I actually want to take everything even though none of it is my fault. None of it is my responsibility and I want to take all of it. Jesus is the only person who has ever lived and who will ever live who does not deserve any blame. Jesus was faced with all the same temptations that exist in our world for us. But instead of giving in and instead of going against God's commands, he demonstrates perfect obedience in his life. He is truly blameless by the definition of the word. But instead of sitting comfortably at a distance in his perfection, Jesus willingly enters in and takes on all of the blame that we deserve and all of the blame that we attempt to transfer to other people. Jesus takes all of that. What an incredible reality that is. So I, I hope at this point you're at least seeing the beauty of what Jesus did. But I'm, I'm also guessing that there is at least some question as, as to what that actually means for us as followers of Jesus. We can see what Jesus did. We can accept what Jesus did but what does it mean for us to, to live distinctly as a city on a hill in regard to this? A people set apart in light of Jesus living a perfect life and taking all the blame that we deserve. What do, what do we do? We can't be perfect. We can't take responsibility for everyone's wrongs like Jesus did. And, and that mentality, in fact, is something that puts some of us into an entirely different but equally as entangling trap. I'm not sure who needs to hear this. I'm, I'm sure someone does today. You cannot be Jesus for other people. You can't. You can show them what Jesus is like. You can serve and sacrifice and love. You can do all those things. But you cannot take on the responsibility and weight of someone else's sin. You can't do that. 
We, we should be grieved. We should be stirred to compassion, all of those things. But, but if you are in this room and you, you struggle with anxiety and fear and guilt over sins committed by others that you feel like you have to take care of, you need to hear that is a burden that Jesus carried. That is not for you to carry. But, but for those of us who are more inclined to blame shift away instead of trying to take responsibility for everyone else, what does this mean? For followers of Jesus, our sin being paid for and and the punishment that we deserve being put on Jesus is the beginning, right? That is the front door for us to enter into an entirely different way of life than the world around us. That is what this whole series has been about every week. And and so for the last bit of our time today, I just want to unpack some of what that means for us. What does it mean that that we can display self-responsibility in an age of blame shifting. And, and I think first, it all starts with what we, what we just read in Isaiah. It, it starts with the work of Jesus. Through, through Jesus' work on the cross, our sin no longer counts against us. Okay? So it, it's not that the sin is gone. It didn't just vanish. But the cost has been paid. Right? Justice has been done for that wrong. So now, followers of Jesus are able to live free from the crushing burden of the cost of sin. That is what we're offered. So now, because, like Isaiah said, he was crushed for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment for our sins was on him, we are offered freedom from the guilt associated with our sin. And not only the guilt, but but the shame that goes with it, too. Jesus didn't just pay for one or the other. He paid for both at the same time, the guilt and the shame associated with sin. So, So now we are offered freedom, freedom from shame. And because of that, we actually have no need to blame shift at all. It's still deeply ingrained in our human nature, the desire to do it, but we don't need to because we've been reconciled to God. And because of that, we are able to live in pursuit of reconciliation instead of trying in vain over and over to justify ourselves or to hide or to dodge taking responsibility for the things that we've done. Right? We, don't have, we don't have to do that. We are, scripture says we are a new creation in Christ. We have a completely new and completely secure identity in Jesus. We are no longer defined by things that we've done. We are not. Jesus took that on himself. And so we, we actually have no need to hide behind our excuses. We have no need to hide at all. Instead, we can actually live in light of that identity that we've been given we can live in light of the, Jesus, the, the identity that Jesus bestows on us. And I think there's a couple, a couple ways that, that we can implement this in our lives. And I just want to end with, with two ways that I think that we can do this as followers of Jesus. And the first is very simple, and it's to take responsibility. We can take responsibility. So because Jesus, like we said, took the, the guilt and the punishment of our sin, and he also took the shame away, We actually have total freedom now to take responsibility for ourselves without fear. 
how unbelievably different and refreshing would this look in everyday life? Think about it. How, how many arguments or, or fights have been started or perpetuated because of some he said, she said nonsense? How many people have experienced hurt because they've been blamed for something they didn't do? How many times has, has trust been broken because someone has been lied to by someone that they trust and care about because they were ashamed of something that they've done? and unwilling to take responsibility for it because they were afraid. How many people live in constant fear every day of being found out for something because they felt the need to cover it up over and over again because of their shame? We can take responsibility for our sin directly and immediately when we are confronted with it. And we also have the, the opportunity to really put the gospel on display and go a step further through the process of confession. Right? Because of the freedom that we've been given, like I said, through Christ, we are able to not only just take responsibility when we're confronted, but we're able to go to other people and confess openly and take full responsibility for the things in our lives. I mean, and I mean truly taking responsibility, not I'm sorry you feel that way. Right? Not, well, I know I did something wrong, but it's only because you did this. No, I'm, I mean real responsibility. I am sorry that I, that I did that. I'm sorry I said that. Here is the reality of what I did. Because of Jesus, we are able to display self-responsibility. And do you realize the freedom that brings to other people, too? Imagine with me for a moment that, that you're in one of the situations, if you were here last week or you listened to the teaching from last week, you're in one of these frustrating situations that we find in our world. Someone has, has offended you or hurt you. They, they've done something and you are just like filled with, with rage or frustration. You're struggling so much to take those frustrations to God. You don't want to. Right? You would love to lash out, honestly. You would love to get them back. You would like to gossip. You'd like to do all these things. You want them to know how badly they have hurt you. You're feeling these things inside. Can you, can you picture a time that's happened? Now, imagine with me for a moment that person in your mind coming up to you and saying something like, hey, listen, the other day I, I said and did some things that, that I think really hurt you. And I hate that I caused you pain. I am so sorry for treating you that way. Can you imagine how helpful that would be if someone did that towards you? So what we're talking about today is being that person for someone else, for, for everyone else around us. That is what we're talking about. That is different that stands out. People are going to have a lot of questions about why on earth you are doing that. And, and the second way that, that I think that we can implement these truths, and, and we'll end with this, is, is we can entrust it all to Jesus. We can entrust it all to Jesus. We, we've talked already about the freedom that we have in Jesus because he has paid the cost. We've talked about that. That is, that is part of entrusting everything to Jesus. It is acknowledging the reality of what he did and living in light of that freedom. 
but his death is also big enough to pay for the wrongs that have ever been done to you. He is big enough to cover the cost of everything and, and even at times to use those things to, to transform you through his grace over time to look more and more like him in the end. Like I said earlier, this does not mean ignoring things that happened in our life. God does not ignore our sin. Our sin is not ignored. Jesus just took the punishment for it. If we ignore the reality of that, then we ignore the significance of what Jesus did. So I'm not saying ignore anything that's ever been done to you. But we can look to Jesus and we can entrust those things to him, knowing that his death was big enough for those things too. Jesus paid for your sin and all the sins that have ever been committed against you. He paid for both. We know that this is true, but we often, we often don't feel like that weight has been lifted off sometimes. So, so part of entrusting it to Jesus is, just like we said last week, bringing your frustrations to him, it also means bringing your pain to him. Bring your pain to Jesus. He is not afraid of it. And just like we saw in Isaiah, he is familiar with suffering. We, we can come to Jesus, and we don't have to pretend that we've never been hurt. We can acknowledge the specific ways that we have been hurt to Jesus. And then we can actually just, we can just hand it over to him and let him do the work of healing. And that's a beautiful reality for us as followers of Jesus. And, and there's such beautiful freedom offered to us if we're just willing to look to Jesus and ask for the moving of the Holy Spirit. Through what he promised, through his people that he put around us, through his word, we have access to all of these things. That is what we are invited into. And, and that's, the, that's the reality of, of what we acknowledge and celebrate when we take communion. And we're going we're gonna to have the tables open here in just a, just a minute. Um, but when, when we take communion, that is us doing something tangible to remember the reality of what Jesus did. It's not just bread and juice. It is, it is meant to, to help us recenter ourselves and, and focus on the reality of what Jesus did, his death. In his resurrection, and not just the action, but, but the reason that he did it, and what he accomplished when he did it, and what he continues to accomplish in us through that reality. And that's, that's why we encourage people to take communion together, because he didn't just die for you. He didn't just die for the person next to you. That's not just between you and the Lord. That is something that all of us get to experience as followers of Jesus together. We have all been offered that, that grace, we have all been offered the, the reality to live in the freedom that, that Jesus offers because the cost of our sin and our guilt and our shame has been paid for. And there's freedom for us in that. So I invite you guys to, to pray with me as we, as we end today.